0: Well, this is the second part of our uh, giving series um, in looking at two Corinthians eight and nine, and, uh, let, let me give you a bit of background to this um, passage that we've just launched into. Especially if you weren't here last week, it's a bit weird jumping into a, sort of the midway through a storyline, isn't it? Um, what's happening is that um, the church in Jerusalem at this time was suffering and um, quite poor. And so um, Paul and his team were coordinating different churches around the coastline uh, of the Aegean Sea uh, to um, raise money. He kind of started his own aid organisation. It, it was pretty much the first Christian aid organisation we know of, Um or organisation is a pretty strong word, um, just project, I uh, think's probably better. And uh, he was encouraging these churches, no matter what their financial status, to contribute, to send money on to the Jerusalem church. And so the letter is being written to the Corinthian church, who's a wealthy church. They've got lots of cash. Um, but also there are other churches, like the Macedonian church, which he mentions a lot of times, who are a poor church, but they're also contributing. Um, he, he, this is a philosophy of poor. You can read about it in 1 Thessalonians, I think around chapter 4. And he makes this basic point, make sure you earn what you can and give away what you can. That's kind of how Christians should live. Um, And this is a foreign concept in in this time, so the church is developing a new kind of understanding of how we relate to money. Uh, But Paul was a little bit nervous about the Corinthian church, that um, they'd be full of good intentions and not necessarily follow through. They were enthusiastic at the start, when all this project was started, as Christians are often enthusiastic at the start of a project when money is concerned and then later on we can get a bit bored of it and forget about it. So chapters 8 and 9 is giving them a push kind of like a coach of an athlete saying okay you've got going now keep going and finish and across, run, run across the finish line. So last week we looked at um, chapter 8 verses 1 to 15 and the focus there was on the idea of giving sacrificially that Paul's saying to them, give sacrificially out of response to your love for Jesus who showed you how to give sacrificially by his own life. Um, And, you know, we talked about how it's a part of the Christian life to develop this kind of sacrificial giving as as a part of our discipline as a Christian. But as we do this, the danger is, of course, that we can become religious about it. That we can become burdened by giving, that can be so so strict in our head and our heart. A lot of people carry around their, their kind of relationship with their money as a burden. They're heavy hearted about it. So when money is talked about, whether it's in the home or you know whether it's with their um, bank manager or whether it's at church, they feel stressed because you know money's tight. Uh, they worry about money so much. Some people worry about it for kind of um, investment reasons. They're worried about the stock market going up and down. Um, Other people give to the ministry of church or to mission, but they do so wrongly thinking that it's a fee for service. I've heard people say that before. We, We pay our money, we expect a product in return. You know, that's wrong as well. But see, there's this whole idea that Paul develops in chapters 8 and 9, and it comes up again next week in in chapter 9, verse 7, which says this, and this is a famous line of Paul's. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And this passage is full of enthusiasm and cheer and drive. So, for example, Titus came to them with much enthusiasm out of his own initiative, it says in 8, chapter 8, verse 17. Paul's team was bringing the funds, showing their eagerness to help, it says in chapter 8, verse 19. One of Paul's team was chosen for his zeal, in chapter 8, verse 22. Uh, Paul knows the Corinthian church are eager to help, chapter 9, verse 2. And he has even boasted to the Macedonian church that the Corinthian church was so enthusiastic that it had stirred them to action, chapter 9, verse 2. All its Eagerness, enthusiasm, uh, stirring of heart. There's lots of passion um, for this project to help the Jerusalem church. But see, the problem with the word enthusiasm, I always find in churches, is that while being a great driver, it's one of those words that can be lost in its meaning. It's, it's, it risks being a kind of what we call a motherhood statement or a platitude Kind of like, you know, in church, especially youth and young adults, churches, there's the word awesome always used, you know, it's, God, it's so awesome to be, awesome, you're awesome, and awesome is used just way too much, to the point where you don't even know what it means anymore. Same with enthusiasm, like, what, what do we mean by enthusiasm? Um, and so what Paul does in this passage, well, what what we see in this passage, at least, is Paul putting meat on the bones of what it looks like to be an enthusiastic giver, and um, you know, he's saying you're feeling enthusiastic about your giving, that's great. Now, this is what you need to do, right? So, and this is what he says. First of all, he says enthusiastic uh, giving is going to require you to be organised, it's going to, it needs to be voluntary, and also it needs to have some accountability around it. You need to be organised, it needs to be voluntary, and you need to have accountability around this giving. And that's what we're going to look at. And unpack. So enthusiastic giving requires us to be organised. See, a lot of what Paul is doing here is he's organising everyone. Um, and there's all this planning that he's doing. He sends Titus, one of his team, to the Corinthian church and two other people which he calls brothers and we don't find out exactly their name. People guess, but we don't really know. But the point is that they're going there to help organise this whole project of giving to the Jerusalem church. Um, and he sends references with, with the delegates, you know, he says "You know, it's alright, they've got um, they've got a good character reference, you can trust them, and you need to trust people with lots of cash, I mean they're going to be carrying it on foot um, and he wants the delegates to arrive with the other delegates from Macedonia and other churches presumably and to find the Corinthian church ready, he says, and not unprepared for this whole project, so he's saying I want to send my people to you, when they get there, I don't want to see that you're um, fiddling around, haven't organised yourself. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 4, Paul says, if the Corinthians can't get organised with this, with this project, that it would be embarrassing for him and it would be embarrassing for them and it would be embarrassing for everyone. You guys are the wealthy church. You've got to get organised. Now, when Christians mess around each other with money, it can really turn ugly. Um, when, we, when we say we're going to do something with our funds and then we don't do it, You know, it can lead to great unhappiness and division in the church and breakdown in relationships and friendships and some of you might have had experiences of that of your own and with different people in your life. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can't be a slacker. And so often, it's not necessarily because people are corrupt or deceptive, but because of a lack of organisation. We used to find at St. Hilary's when we do um, our, our annual call to um, be part of the um, financial giving program of the church to sign up that there would always be this huge gap between what people pledge and what people actually give. When I say huge, I'd say you know 10% or something. Um, and I think probably what it was was largely to do with the younger end of the crowd, the young adults especially, who get all excited initially and fill in the form and then forget about it, and then not follow through with the administration. It's one thing to be enthusiastic, but you need to also be organised. You can get easily swept up in the emotion of turning over a new leaf. This year's going to be the year that I give, and then you never get around to it. I would like every member of um, our church who has the capacity to give, to give. We currently have... 65 um, of our 114 adults who regularly give to the ministry of our church. Um, That's about 57%. And I'd love to see this bump up to 80%. It's a big jump, isn't it, 80%. Now, the reason why there's a big gap, 57%, you think, oh, that's not many. That's a little over half. It's because we are growing pretty quickly at the moment. We've grown by about 40% since last year, which is significant. That's a fast growth for a church. And so it takes time to catch up, for everyone to, you know, catch up on sort of joining up and being members and all that sort of thing. Um, and why why do I only want 80, 80% of the church to be giving? It's because there's, it's always going to be about 20% of the church who are still trying to work out whether they're Christians or whether they're part of the church or they're just new. So, you know, the idea that 100% would be giving is, is, is not how it works. Um, but the now, the basic thing is if Jesus has transformed your life and if you realise that you have received the greatest gift of all which is a new life in Christ then you will have not only the ability to give but also the transformed heart to give and that's key. In fact, you're probably sitting here right now thinking how do I, how do I give America? I want to do it today. <laughs> you might be thinking that. Where do I sign up? We do have forms at the back of the church. Can uh, Rochelle or someone, lawyers, just look down there and see the forms. Yeah, yeah, they're there holding them up. Thank you, Rochelle. So they're there on a little clipboard, and you can sign up today. But see, the thing is, the devil doesn't want you to do this. So he'll put things in your way. He'll put the coffee in your way. He'll put, you know, conversations in your way. He'll put all kinds of things in your way. So what you've got to do is do it before you leave. So here's the two applications about being enthusiastic and organised. First of all, do it today. So what we used to do at St. Hills with the young adults is um, set up laptops at the back of the church so that they could go up during the service and do their internet banking while I'm preaching. And people used to do it. Didn't work with the, adult, the old adults at the nine o'clock service because I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't know why. I don't know what that comment was but it's probably true. Um, uh, so, first of all, do it today Secondly, tell someone you're going to do it So, you know, get it out there in the open um, Tell a um, church council member Tell Tom Hodgson, our treasurer Tell me, tell your, your friend or something That way they can help you be organised I want to be able to boast about our generosity Like Paul boasted about the generosity of the Corinthians to the Macedonians Secondly, enthusiastic giving needs to be voluntary. So, Paul didn't want the Corinthians to think, oh, this is where, you know, you've got to do this or else you're out. We're not a cult here, you know, basically. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not, his key, not as one grudgingly given. So he's not running cold. He doesn't want you to give because you have to because you're forced to. It's voluntary. That's not to say, however, that if you don't feel like giving, that you shouldn't give. Because the thing is, we should never let our feelings get in the way of our spiritual disciplines. If we only went to church when we felt like it, if we only read the Bible when we felt like it, if we only loved people when we felt like it, then we might find ourselves not doing all those things very often. We do it because we want to be obedient. We want to do it in response to God's love for us, no matter what we might be feeling on one particular day or another. Jesus didn't necessarily feel like going on the cross and having nails put through his hands and feet. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating blood. Um, you know, he's crying out to his father in heaven and saying, if there's any other way, I'd, I'd like another way. Um, let this cup pass me by, he says. Um, but not my will, but your will. And that's an ultimate demonstration of obe- obedience despite your feelings, you know. Um, so in the same way, we've got to look at Jesus and say, Jesus wasn't forced to go on the cross. He did it voluntarily out of obedience and draw that back into our own discipleship in all areas of our lives. We don't do it because we're forced, we do it out of voluntary obedience. And as we give voluntarily and enthusiastically, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that our, enthe- in, our in our enthusiasm that our giving is an opportunity to do something great for God, like we're doing Him a favour. It's not about helping God out with money, it, it, give it when you give to others, the poor, mission, or to the church. You're not doing it to do God a favour. God doesn't need our money to further his causes. He's not dependent on us. God gives to us out of his sovereign self sufficiency and love, not in order to receive back as if he needed anything. Remember what Paul says when he's preaching in Athens. Um, read about this in Acts 17 24 and 25. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We also don't give voluntarily to God um, because we're thankful. Um, Now let me clarify here what I mean by this. We shouldn't be trying to prove our sincerity to God. It's not like we're saying, I'm really, really glad, God, so look at me, I'm going to give you my money. Those who recognise God to be the giver of all things are just automatically thankful, and God knows our hearts. The problem with giving to God specifically out of one moment of thankfulness is that you might have time in your life and you're not thankful (laughs) so you might might go up and down in your thankfulness but the Christian should be always living in a state of thankfulness that's the clarity so enthusiastic giving should be voluntary and an act of faith in response to God's grace this is what we do as a church, this is a ministry of grace to use the language of the passage not begrudgingly Not when we're threatened, not when we're put on the spot, not when we've just had a good day, not when we're necessarily feeling good. And Paul is testing the waters with the Corinthian church to see if the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. Uh, He says, Look at Titus, look at his enthusiasm, look at the brothers, look at the Macedonians, look at their enthusiasm, look at my enthusiasm. Do you have that same enthusiasm? So, when he boasts to the Macedonians in chapter 9, verse 2, about how good the Corinthian church has been, he's modelling what it means to have a transformed heart of, of graciousness and, and enthusiasm to give. This is a ministry that glorifies God. So, giving should be organised, it should be voluntary, and thirdly, enthusiastic giving should be accountable. So the focus of this passage is on the advanced delegation, as I've said, to, to um, the, the people who are going to prepare it all and organize it all. And he's, make, he's making sure Paul's making sure the Corinthians have got their finances in order, so that when they, the delegation comes, they're ready to go, And he sends his personal delegate, Titus and the two brothers. Now this is an accountability measure to make sure everyone's integrity stays intact. Paul's protecting the reputation of all the the churches. It's really important. Paul called them, um, in the Greek, apostolite. He's calling them apostles. These, These people I'm sending you, you've got to treat them like apostles. Not apostles in the sense that Paul's an apostle chosen by God who's seen the resurrected Jesus, but an apostle and a sent one. He's a sent one. A commissioned one. And in verse 18, Paul says that They'll be sending the, the brother who's praised, who he doesn't name, and later in verse 22 he says he's sending another brother. And gives the character references. They've proved that they're zealous in their faith and they've got good, good character. Praised by the, all the churches for their ministry. And this is strength in numbers. So imagine being the Jerusalem church and there's just one person who rocks up with cash. You might be wondering, who's this person? It's amazing you know, what you can do, when, you do what, what, you know, when you're just on your own or when you're being sneaky, you know? Um, and the money could have been swiped. There was this story about, at the v- Victorian College of the Arts a few years ago, I don't know how many years ago, maybe five years ago now, the two um, blokes rocked up in overalls and, and went into one of the rehearsal rooms and wheeled out a grand piano and just wheeled out the front door and into the truck and drove away. Because no one asked them, I didn't know who they were. Who are these blokes? So having all these delegates, right, is about setting up, you know, um, good process. Um, and we have strict accountability measures at Mary Creek. When the money is taken out of the giving box, out of the letter box at the back, um, it's usually Ross and one other person—a warden or a treasurer and they um, usually, what they do is they email each other the amount that's taken and they both are there when the money comes out and then it's deposited in the bank. Right? There's a little bit of detail there. Now they could still work together to steal the money, couldn't they, the two of them? But that would then elevate from being just personal temptation and they stuff up to complete conspiracy, you know. So it's good, good safety measures. Same with um, when we make payments from the account, there's two um, electronic signatures of either the wardens or the treasurer. Now, why does all this matter? Why am I giving you this detail? Like, come on, it sounds like we're in an accounting meeting or something, or church council or something. Church council is usually quite entertaining, actually. Well, there's a reason. Paul explains in chapter eight twenty one 21, that he wants to do what is right in the sight of the Lord and in the eyes of others, right? This is about guarding the reputation of the church, but it's not just about optics, as they say in politics, you know, what it looks like, It's 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 actually about having integrity, not just looking like it. I recently saw an old interview with Bill Clinton, where the interviewer explaining explained to him that C-SPAN, the television station, um, had ranked all the American presidents based on their sort of um, what they'd achieved. And on economics, he came fifth out of all the presidents of the American America. But out of um, moral integrity, he came like. Bottom under Nixon, they said, and he and he got very defensive, as you would. And it's because of all the sex sex scandals. He didn't. He he was a gr- great president from a polit- political point of view, hopeless from a moral point of view, and he just didn't look after that. And he spent his whole whole um, presidency and afterwards, sort of, um, you know, covering over or making excuses. And now his wife Hillary Clinton, p- potentially the future president of America. She, she has this email scandal, which is nothing like what Bill had, but there's this cloud around their leadership, isn't there? Uh, can we trust these people? In the same way that politicians need to um, protect their reputation, so does the church. And I think in the culture that we're living in now, it's getting more... I mean, it's, it's always important to have a good integrity and have good optics, as I, say, as I said. But even more so now, you might have noticed in the Inner North, posters up around, to do with the election... From the sex party, say, so, tax the church. And I noticed that yesterday, some nuns were caught in Smith Street painting over the posters. <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah, radical nuns. <laughs> people are looking at us going, I don't trust you. You don't even have to pay tax. What are you doing with your money? Are you just like, you know, having businesses on the side? Like, and people often point at Hillstone and say, they got this. million record label that doesn't have to pay tax. I don't even know if they don't pay tax, but we've got a lot of pressure on us. And the same is true for us as individuals. Opposers to Christianity could have suggested, for example, to Paul that he's just planting churches to make money and he wants to make sure that that accusation can't be made. He's desperately concerned that the world would look at the young and small Christian movement and see it not as self serving but as other person serving. As radical. The wardens and the church council here are accountable to the processes. And and so am I. But each one of us should have a sense of accountability for our own personal finances too. And this is a trick for us in, in, in middle class Australia because we don't like to talk about our own finances. Uh, we're not beyond being questioned. We should be able to challenge each other, but whoa, don't talk to me about my finances. You know, you know people are very nervous about it, but as Christians, we should be different. We've got to be enthusiastic givers. We've got to have accountability around that. Same thing goes with all of our life, our sex life, our thought life. We need accountability. You've got to stop thinking of your money as a private matter that should be in secret. Now I'm not saying you don't have boundaries and that you have to go around telling everyone and holding up you know, your, your, what your, your spend, spending was on that week, like we are some kind of cult. I'm not suggesting that. But we're a covenant community. I mean, look, look at the ultimate example of this in Acts 2 verse 44. The early church who just received the Holy Spirit and were just on fire for Jesus, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all that they had in need You know, that's what it could be like. This is less about the rights of the individual and more about the mutual benefit of the group. And when people look back at the church and see how it behaves with money, whether it's a cannibal or not, it should see the gospel being embodied, being lived out like a kind of God drama on the world stage. They should see that the gospel isn't about self-seeking but about self-giving. If you try and be self-seeking, you deny the very basis of the gospel. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life up as a ransom for many. Mark 10.5 And this work that Paul set up of collecting money for the poor church in Jerusalem must not leave any impression that those who were called to this work were using it to make themselves rich, Same thing goes with us and our church, our giving as a church and as individuals. This regular habit of of giving our own money is a practice which forms in our heart virtue. It could become a hollow ritual where you just do it and do it and do it and do it like a religious person. But the habit of giving enthusiastically and sacrificially, it should, done out of response to God, It should develop in our heart this virtue of generosity and love. Tom Wright wrote in his book, Virtue Reborn, giving is absolutely obligatory on all because our whole calling is to reflect God, the creator. And the main thing we know about this true God is that his very nature is self-giving, generous love. See, God loves a cheerful, enthusiastic giver because that's what He is Himself like. He's a cheerful giver. An enthusiastic giver is a person after God's own heart. So, making a regular, formal, and public practice of the going of the giving of money is designed to generate this habit in our heart, which forms a key part of what Paul calls agape love, um, other-person-centered, sacrificial love. And when we do this, the passage says we glorify Christ. Paul describes Titus and the brothers as representatives or apostles of the church churches and an honour to Christ. The churches are the glory of Christ. You might remember if you've ever read Revelation that there's this image that the Apostle John sees of the Christ standing there holding the seven stars, which are representative of the churches. The local church really is a source of, of the brightness, of the glory of Christ. And that means Mary Creek is this source too, source of the glory of Christ. And when you give financially to the ministry of our church, to mission to the poor, you're being obedient and you're bringing glory to God. So to finish, you can't become a cheerful, enthusiastic giver on your own. To develop this virtue, the Holy Spirit has to have transformed your heart. And when this happens, you will realise that you have received the greatest of benefits from God. And you will see that you have not only the resources to give, but the transformed heart as well. And as this happens, remember. Remember to be organised. Remember that it's voluntary. And remember to keep accountable to it.